Hey, welcome to the 170th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Alex Schwartz. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Drea Clark on. She's a festival programmer, a producer, a podcaster, jack of all trades. She even taught at USC Film School for a while. Yeah, for like 13 years. Uh, so she is a wealth of knowledge. We could have talked to her for another 15 hours, but we dive in a ton on the insight that she has garnered from being in the festival game for so long and how she applies that to her producing career, how she picks projects, the ways in which she makes them stand out amongst the crowd, and how she applies her wealth of filmic knowledge to producing in general. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that she uh, works at Sundance now and ran Slamdance, so... <laughs> Not not the tiniest festivals you've never heard of. Yeah, she's a wealth of knowledge and a real hoot. Also on the show, we're bringing back this segment, Call Sheet. I wonder if like any of our listeners actually remember that we did this segment before. I would say 10. <laughs> yeah, ten I think do. that's 10 is the episode that we last did it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, uh, but we're bringing it back. And I think that it's kind of retooled before we were just trying to talk to as many different crew members as we could. And that's pretty overwhelming. And you end up wanting to talk to everybody for a super long amount of time. Uh, so we're, we've retooled it and we are looking at the hidden jobs of the filmmaking industry. People who you've heard of their job, but you don't really have a great understanding of what they do. Um, so we're talking to my old friend, Elena White, who writes commercial treatments. So we'll talk about what she likes about treatments, what she doesn't, the things that she does to punch things up and make them even better to get huge directors even bigger and better jobs. But before we do that, we have one important pressing matter, and that is our Patreon page. Yeah, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a place for you to support the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, if you tune in every week and you feel like you get some value out of this, then check out our Patreon page and... Uh, Give us a buck a month. Throw us a buck or two. We appreciate it. And if you don't, we still appreciate you. Thanks for listening. But really, folks, if you don't give us money, then just tell other people about the podcast. Yeah, that's almost that's, as good. Maybe that's even the trade. Just as good. Well, cool. Well, thanks for listening. And on with the show. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us what you do exactly. I am a commercial treatment writer, which is a ghost writer for commercial directors, uh, which basically means that I do... Uh, technical and creative writing on behalf of the directors when they're bidding on commercial jobs and that gets submitted to the ad agency along with a numerical bid that comes from the production company. So we talk a lot about treatments on the show and you were basically like the secret weapon of a director who's maybe too busy to really kind of um, dial in exactly what they want to say on a treatment or um, Maybe they're not like as strong a writer as you are. You're kind of, you know, you, you're lending your expertise on uh, writing treatments to directors who want a little bit of extra help. Yes. How does a director find you? How do you get employed by these people? Uh, so most of the companies that I work with are larger production companies, and they have anywhere from like five to 25 directors on their roster. Um, so originally when I first started, I was working for a pretty big pr uh, commercial production company and I was a coordinator there and my executive producer had quite a few directors on the roster who, um, were French. English was not their first language and although their speaking skills were great, oh, that's you good. know, yeah. writing is difficult no matter what. So it's even more difficult when you're writing in a language that is not you know, your first language. 
So I started rewriting treatments for some of the directors on our roster. And so that's how I got into it. And then from there, when I decided that I wanted to go freelance, uh, there was executives and other coordinators at the company who were really helpful in getting my name out to other directors that they worked with, friends that they had at other production companies, uh, the freelancers who come in and work on commercial jobs, you know, they might be there for a couple of weeks and then they are off to the next company. So they take your name out with them. Mm -hmm. So it was really more word of mouth and connection, which just word gets out. Yeah. yeah, That's how I did it. Now I do know other people who, you know, basically cold called production companies and emailed, uh, samples and, you know, made connections that way. But for me, it was more word of mouth and people who, you know, having met, all these people at the first production company that I worked at. Now that you've kind of moved into doing this full-time professionally, it's not just people who, um, who where English is a second language for them. Um, it's kind of just anybody who needs help. Yeah, exactly. Time? And even before I left that production company, other directors who were under other EPs at the company had started using me. And it, it really just comes down to um, the deadlines are so quick and you have your phone call with the agency and then they're like okay you know maybe can we get a treatment in like two or three days and for instance that director if they're on another job if they're you know in Budapest directing three days uh, you know three-day shoot they're really not gonna have time to sit down and write a treatment and make it sound good so they hire someone like me who can help them out or you know again if they're not the greatest writer in the world and honestly sometimes you just get directors who are a little burnt out because they've been directing commercials forever and they've written thousands of treatments and they just don't feel like they have a whole lot left to say in terms of writing treatments so they'll hire someone like me for those reasons as well do you have any moves you like to do or do you have any like what what's your secret weapon well, what are you adding? Um, what do you like to add the best, I guess, is what I'm saying. I think the first thing is, is you always want to really make it feel as though the director wrote it themselves. You don't want to go so far afield into your own style that the agency reads it or the client, you know, at the end of the day reads mm -hmm. it and they know that there is no way the director wrote it. So uh, for me, it's really paying attention to how the director speaks on the conference call, the kinds mm -hmm. of jokes that they make, you know, do they like to use, you know, multi-syllabic words or do they really stick to short words and succinct sentences? You just want to make sure that that comes across in the treatment so that they feel like it's an extension of the person that they spoke to on the phone when they did their conference call. Can I ask you a specific question about that? Sure. If they swear a lot on the call, do you try to put that into the treatment? So, no. We usually don't put uh, curse words into the treatment. I myself, as Matt can tell you, I have a terrible potty mouth. So there will be times when I will try and work in a swear word or two into the fucking treatment. fucking awesome. Yeah, fucking awesome, I feel like, is the one... If you're doing like a beer commercial or like a sports spot, you could say fucking awesome. Yeah. Tongue yeah. in cheek, right? I've been trying to like pretend I'm young and I'll put like an AF. Like, oh, this will be cool AF. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> Maker sucks. Boy, Orin loves the 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 fire emoji on a lot in his yeah. treatments. <laughs> I think for me, where I tend to use it the most is actually when I'm writing out the story itself. So, uh-huh. for instance, if you have a character who you want to convey that they have a certain expression on their face, like a what the fuck expression, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I might write something in like italics that says, what the fuck just happened? Right, right. And sometimes I'll try and soften it by putting an asterisk in for the you. And it just depends on who the agency is and who the client is. Right. Uh, sometimes I get away with it. Bite hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes they let it slide, but most of the time they're like, um, yeah, let's take out the cuss yeah. words. And are you collaborating with a, a layout artist as well are they like helping with pulling because that's the other half of the treatment right of course it's like there's so many visual elements that are involved in that how do you collaborate with those people so if i even know who the visuals person is on the job m- my specific collaboration with them is more about hey when do you need to have the written words from me by in order mm-hmm. to get your part of the job done in enough time right, uh, right. And I tend to add a lot of my own ideas into the treatment. So these poor visuals people will get the treatment and they'll like read some weird stuff that I put in there. And then they're like, oh God, I got to like do a quick pull on these ideas that she added. So excuse my French, but it's like shit kind of rolls downhill. Sure, sure. So, um, so yeah, so I don't really interact with them too much beyond just coordinating sure. deadlines rolling your and, shit down the hill yeah exactly yeah. and i'm like right. here's the treatment hope you like all the extra stuff i added yeah uh, well, <laughs> well that's so interesting though because i think that's probably you know that's part of what they're paying you for too do you know what i mean like yes. it's not just articulate what the director said on the call in a more cogent way it's like you still have to plus it right a hundred percent yes absolutely uh you know even when the director is on the call with the agency and maybe they're spitballing ideas back and forth and they'll throw out stuff that seems really great in the moment but then when you're working on the treatment it doesn't make sense in the story somehow Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. part of the treatment writer's jobs or at least i consider it treatment writer's job you help make the story make sense um and there's some directors that i never speak to i just listen to the call and i write the treatment off of that there's others that i work with who i might you know talk to them for about an hour before i start writing and just so that i can be a sounding board that he or she can bounce ideas off of um so for me that's what makes the job interesting is that you know you're not just some transcriptionist and you're not just you Mm -hmm. know putting sentences together you're adding in, you know, you're plussing their creative vision with your own creative vision. You're the secret weapon. I try to be. I really would love to know, like, kind of what the biggest mistakes you've seen in treatments. Uh, like, what makes horrible treatments? Um, let's see. Well, she's I've... never submitted one, so. <laughs> but I definitely have looked at a <laughs> lot I'm of. Sure she's fixed many. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, I have fixed treatments, and I have, I always ask for samples uh, when I'm working with someone new, just so I can see what their writing style is like. I think when you read treatments where they're trying too hard to be clever, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think where you read treatments that, you know, all of us, mistakes are going to get by typos are going to get by i'm terrible at spotting my own typos like at this point i don't even typo check the first draft i come back and check it 
later because I'm not going to see those typos. But I will see treatments that have been sent out that are just riddled with mistakes. And, um, you know. Wow. Well, it sounds like that's something that's just like nice and straightforward, at least. Just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just it's that just making sure your work is meticulous and then also just not trying to be overly clever where it feels like you're being phony. Right. You know, just show genuine enthusiasm about the project. Don't be phony with it. Yeah, well, that's so wonderful. Like, what straightforward advice? Like, just kind of dot your I's and cross your T's and also be genuine. That's exactly yeah. what you want to hear. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no booby trap to that. You know, it's Absolutely. just like, be a good student. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elena. This uh, It's so great to get to have you on the show and to shed a little bit of light on this kind of secret sort of part of the industry it's so interesting to me we haven't done a call sheet in a long time and it was because i was like oh this is the perfect thing like everybody knows what a dp does who cares about that like i want to talk to people where it's like you i'm like i am maybe a little foggy on what the job is that's my favorite so thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks elena well thank you for having me Hey, we're going to take a quick break because we have Seth Worley, one of the co-founders of Plot Devices, with us here in the studio. His company makes products that help filmmakers figure out their stories and storyboards and all sorts of cool things. Seth, can you tell us a little bit about your process of how you write a feature script and why the story clock is helpful for that? Yeah, so I realized a while back that when I get a story idea, I don't just get one idea. I don't get a log line just broadcast to me. I get a big pile of ideas. Some of them are really well formed, like scenes, sequences, characters, themes. Some of them are weird, random, unformed ideas that need to be grown a little more. And because I have a loose sense of traditional Joseph Campbell story structure, I know where most of these ideas are probably going to fall in the story. So when I drop them in, inevitably there are big gaps that need to be filled to get me from point A to C. This is normally where I break down crying and give up and stop. Until I figured out this process, which made it a lot easier for me, by visualizing the story like a clock, if it's a two-hour movie, the 30-minute point is at the three o'clock mark, the hour point is at the six o'clock mark, and so on. You'll find that, you know, act breaks are normally right above three o'clock and right above nine o'clock. You take the ideas, your pile of ideas that you got, you drop them generally where they're probably going to fall in the story, and you pinpoint the gaps. And then by using symmetry, you can fill these gaps organically. Rather than injecting random weird ideas from the outside, you can extract ideas from what you already have. So if I see I have a gap at one point in the story, I can look at the opposite side of the clock to see where there are things that I could build on or pay off. It's a simple but effective way to be able to fill out the story and to get to an outline quicker and start writing. Whether you end up following that outline or not, it gives you at the very least peace of mind and confidence to keep going into the weeds. Cool. Well, if you want to find out more about the story clock and the various products that Plot Devices makes to help you figure out your movie, check out plotdevices.co. This week, this is the big one. We're giving away everything. That's right. We're talking storyboard notebook. We're talking story clock notebook. We're talking story clock workbook in your choice of a pin. To win it all, go to Instagram or Twitter right now, tag at plot devices CO, and let us know what movie or show had a plot twist that just blew your mind. And let's disqualify Sixth Sense from the get-go. For me, a movie with a twist that really inspired me was Memento. Totally changed what the entire movie was about. And then more recently, I really loved what happened at the end of the third episode episode of Russian Doll made that show so much more unique than I thought it was going to be. I really loved it. So let us know what movie or show had a plot twist that blew your mind and you might just win it all. Hey, we are here with Drea. Thank you for coming. Drea Clark, hello, welcome. 
Hey guys, thanks for having me. Your resume is super long and super complex. Right? You've got a lot of different stuff going on. Um, you're... Drea, you're so old and unfocused. <laughs> it's a delight to have you. Well, I was no. aiming for a compliment. <laughs> so you're a master of all trades. Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, film critic, programmer, podcaster, producer, festival programmer. Yes, festival yes, programmer. Pardon me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I and I want you. people right, giving me the uh, computer exactly. Sorry, Oren's disappointed, but I'm extra excited. Yeah, that's excited. why we, I, we're looking for engineers slash filmmakers. Ignore his LinkedIn request. Then. <laughs> yes, my uh, GitHub. Do you know that website? Oh, I'm so glad I don't. Page. No. Drea, uh, let's start with festival programming. What festivals do you program for currently, and what which ones have you programmed for in the past? Um, I feel chronologically is the best way Ooh, to explain perfect. my uh, festivals because there's over, been overlap. I started in festivals when I moved moved out to LA many moons ago. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin. Oh, cool. Um, obviously, head. yes. Go Badgers. As you, I'm sure you know, like, obviously you think film schools. Of course, of and you course. Think yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. I do want to say that uh, it's great for listeners to hear because I think we get people writing in all the time that are like, should I go to film school or like, oh, I, have I went that. to a crappy film school and I feel bad about it. It's not a big deal. No. Um, I taught at USC School of Cinema for 13 years, and I don't think you should necessarily go to a film school. Really? I kind of... I went to USC Ford. Oh. Not 13, but... Uh, <laughs> 12 years. Thank God. Um, <laughs> what, what, did, what did you teach? I taught music video production. Oh, dang. What? I was That's a gonna, class? I wanted to take that class so bad. It was great. It, that is a great class. Yeah, it was great. A lot of good videos come out of that class. Too. I thought so. And I had... It was wonderful because I was able to bring in... Um, this is going to be a very meandering thing because yeah, my yeah. career, as I you mentioned, has been very meandering. I'm going to get you back onto film festivals. No, it's okay because it does all it. tie in. I started in production working in music video. And so that was my background of learning the ropes, really. And it was great um, in terms of just hands-on experience because the turnover time is so quickly um mm -hmm. normally a tv show you're well if you're lucky enough to get crewed on that you're locked in for a long time um indie films even a short one is still like three or four weeks whereas a music video if you're on you can kind of mm -hmm. prove yourself as worthy and kind of make yourself because you know once people have a crew and a team they like those are the people you call first mm -hmm. every time mm -hmm. So once you prove that you're not a dum-dum and relatively competent and easy to be around for very long shoot days, sure. then, um, then you're good to go. You're hopefully pretty good to go. So if you can prove that without spending $45,000 a year, <laughs> even better. <laughs> but the festival thing, so I moved out here with no plan from Wisconsin. I just knew I was going to move to LA or New York and I'm from the Midwest. So I was done with snow. It's like sure. LA it is. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have... <laughs> any contacts or a good solid plan but um you guys had a dream in my heart and, hey, and that listen, midwestern work ethic and we all moved here right yeah. i get yeah. you i mean well, step one is move here step right. two is figure out why you moved here yeah no it's very real i think the figuring out why is a huge part and um i when i studied you know i studied communication arts which was tv film and then english and so we did more there were some production classes but it was more film theory and film mm -hmm. criticism and developing an eye. And I think that's definitely helped my career as a programmer in looking at things historically, having context, like that just, that helps when you're comparing films like against other films. But when I moved out here, I wasn't totally sure what I was going to do. I ended up making friends with some people who went to SC 
randomly. And one of them was interning. I didn't even know what interning was, by the way. Wisconsin was not like, make sure, go You're find like, an internship. Like I was Work for free? Yeah, I was yeah. so walking blind. I can't even explain. And so she was like, oh, yeah, I, I work at this film festival. I'm like, great, I'm bored. Do they want me? Mm-hmm. I'll do whatever. And then I stayed there for 19 years. So I started at Slamdance as an intern. And then I moved into um, shorts programming mm-hmm. and really liked it and realized, oh, actually, I was programming because in Wisconsin, I ran the the, the play circle, like our little art cinema in the mm-hmm. union. I'm like, oh, I called it picking films. Uh-huh. But yes, programming. <laughs> that's that's what I like. Okay, good. Um, and then so eventually I, I ran the Slamdance narrative team for about 13 years and then was eventually the exec director of the festival for two or three years and produced the festival as well. And wow. actually Slamdance, the... The other thing I fell in love with, Slamdance has programmed our team is entirely um, consists of other filmmakers, mostly Mm -hmm. alumni filmmakers. So it's very different than other festivals, and it's done in a really sort of diplomatic Mm -hmm. roundtable. Diplomatic? Democratic. One of those sort of things. I had to be diplomatic as the team leader. It's a democratic process. But Slamdance's whole focus is first-time directors, so all of our competition slate is... So, yeah, Oren Pelly, um, I programmed Lynn Shelton's first film. Did you do Drake Doremus' Drake Doremus' first one, yep. Well, your face is lighting up. Like, clearly you really loved those films. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The thing about being at a Discovery Festival, which is mm-hmm. primarily what I program, it's a whole trusting your gut thing. So it's twofold. One, you feel like you've been part of this film even if you didn't help create it sure when I mean, it you gets are there because you careers right right and you fought for it and like and then two when they do succeed you're sort of like oh i was a doula for their birth sure yeah how wonderful <laughs> but like sean baker i programmed yeah. sean's first film cool. in 2006 and yeah, yeah. um and Tangerine. to have him yeah and to have him go on and make the incredible films he has so the russo brothers Mark Forrester, like the amount of people who've come through. What? You did his first movie? Yeah. That was the slam dance of it. And then again, being at a festival meant that it was sort of seasonal. So I was still able to be in production. And that's when I was really working music video and festivals back and forth. Wait, so are you still involved with slam dance now? No, I, I'm, I've been at Sundance for the past couple of years. So I am now at Sundance. I was going to say Liz Manischel. I, I can't believe oh, I didn't. Oh, Liz, yeah, with Liz. of course. Liz is a dear friend. Oh, yeah. she's such a great human. Yeah, yeah, she's the best. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and Liz, I actually weirdly met through Film Independent. I've um, programmed the LA Film Festival for the last 10 years and was the senior programmer for the last four or something. And then I'm still at Film Independent as producer in residence. And then I've also, for the last four years, programmed Gina Davis's Bentonville Film Festival, Mm -hmm. um, which is a concentration on really looking for women and people of color and other underrepresented voices, both in front of and behind the camera. Wait, what are you doing at Sundance? Programming also? Yes, programming. um, I'm in the episode. We started an episodic section three years ago now. And that's like TV? It's TV. Or web? It's primarily TV. Um, what are, oh, I should, every year like blurs together so quickly. The, um, I think the early stuff was like. But we showed Wild Wild Country was one of uh our premieres, which is this incredible documentary series. And so do you show just the first couple episodes or how does that work? It's a split. So some of them, we have a. You guys did, uh, OJ. 
Oh yeah, that was the this people year. Against, yeah. And this year we did Finding Neverland as well. Yeah, the Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like um, the a marathon screening where you were just like, oh, we're yes. gonna watch all of. Yeah, Finding Neverland is it like a miniseries? The Michael Jackson. Yeah. Well, it's a yeah. It was like a three hours, four hours. The one that came out this year. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was like a four hour movie, but it's no, an episodic. No, no, no. It was episodic. But yeah. you showed it all at once. Yeah. Oh wow! And then um, these are all documentaries, but we showed a lot of scripted stuff too. But the Wu Tang um, documentary, which ended up at Showtime, which I love, the episodics. There's something great about the structure of that. Of it's a different approach to how they're setting up the storytelling, mm-hmm. um, and I like that it flexes different muscles for the artists. And um, so we show to us what represents the best of the best. So we'll have um, we have independent pilots. One of the scripted pilots that we showed this year called Work in Progress just got picked up um, with actually with Lily Wachowski as an EP oh, on wow. it. What's the lowest budget, least famous thing that you program? Like do you like... At Sundance? Yeah. Um, well, you wouldn't have heard of it, but like <laughs> it's hard. It's a whole range. Like we, and it, we also showed different lengths. We showed the entirety of State of the Union, which was uh, starred Chris O'Dowd and... Go on, girl. Help me. Rosamund Pike. She's like one of those, like a pretty blonde actress who I could not pick her out She's of great. A... She's so Hitchcocky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's written by Nick Hornsby. Mm-hmm. It was directed by, right. well, you guys all have access to the internet. But I mean, can internet. somebody, like if Matt and I made a show, is yes. there a way that so, could get into Sundance or y- yes, do we have to be Nick Hornsby? because that's like work in progress, the one I just mentioned that got picked up. That was one that was made by this um, gay comic out of Chicago who's been working on it for years. It's like, it's not someone who's like, yes, I'm fresh out of film school. Like she's been honing um, her one woman play for a long time, which mm-hmm. this is based on. And so she made, we get a lot of sort of independently made pilots. And episodics is an area that I find really exciting. It's why I'm so psyched to do it at Sundance. So many people who are making films actually kind of want to be making TV, but mm-hmm. you're, you've never really thought of it that way. And I know for us at Sundance, the hope is like that it could be the same sort of marketplace for new creatives in the same way that film is. So the people who are thinking that more in episodic structure, people Mm -hmm. who are, oh, I built this whole world and I have a whole Bible with the whole first four seasons arced out, you know, those are the things we're looking for as well. So we definitely have ones that we played that you don't know who they are and you don't mm-hmm. know the actors in them. Right, it's not Wu-Tang Clan. Or... No. Those were the ones that I remembered because they're the ones that I was saying is like our all of our pitching points. <laughs> during. Sure. But the ones that really excite me, it's the same thing. It's the discovery of it. Right, right. When you're looking at new pilots, what's the thing that like makes you excited about them that makes you want to program a pilot? So the thing that gets me, it's, it's twofold. I keep saying it's twofold, but I guess I'm a bilateral thinker. <laughs> Who knew? Now I've, what an educational experience for me. One of them is the idea of directorial voice or authorial voice. So much with indie film is this way as well. But I find that almost to its detriment. Like, we'll get a lot of first-time filmmakers who've made this story that's about something really significant to them. And therefore, they sometimes are not as tight with it as they should be. They're not as looking at the storytelling. They're looking more mm-hmm. at like, no, but that's how it really was. Oh, that's how it really happened. Yeah. There's nothing worse than being in a, like the, the screenwriting workshop and being like, well, yes. this is bad. And then being like, well, this is how it really went down. Yeah. And you're, you're like, like, well, okay, great. now. Well, now we're writing it, so yeah. let's do it better. Or sometimes yeah. I'll be like, I don't really believe this. And they're like, no, it, that really happened. I'm like, well, 
then write it in a way that makes me believe right. in it. <laughs> it really happened. And so in f- film, that definitely happens all the time where, and you've saved up and you have this one big story, but I think that can fall flat. Whereas with episodic, if it's either webisodes, if you're looking at people making four or five minute or 10 minute pieces or more traditional kind of 22 minute length, um, I think there's a requirement because of the structure to do that editing, to tighten in a way that with a film, it can kind of stay loosey-goosey. You're like, I've got 90 minutes. I'll have this 10-minute scene with my dad that really happened. Sure. Like That would be a whole episode of your web series. Right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, we can't do a whole episode with him just talking to his dad. So you have to fine-tune it. So I think it takes episodics. And I'm saying that sort of interchangeably both for what people think of as web series. I don't really like the term web series only sure. because it has such a like early 2000s. Yeah, sure. kind of digital. Right. Digital yeah. series. Digital series, yeah. yeah. You well, say web series and you think, you know. Like just terrible t- toaster effects yeah, and yeah. just a really rudimentary filmmaking. And I think there's people out there doing really sophisticated and playful work mm-hmm. that's just happens right. to be episodic structure. Right. So like I said, the... F- fold one of my twofold is having that distinctive voice because you know for years what we've gotten from television has been something that's been so heavily edited through broadcasters through their weird structure of oh i got something picked up for pilot and now fifty thousand people are going to give me notes on it standards and practices right and by the time we see a a lot of TV shows, they've been almost euthanized. Like this, mm-hmm. the whole soul has been sucked out of them. And yeah, you just sand all the edges off. Yeah. yeah. And so having the ability to just put that forth yourself, um, if it's online, if it's through festivals, it's the same thing as with indie film, but a lot more people, I think, are taking that on. And I, I encourage it. I think it's a, I think it's a smart move for showing the kind of um, storytelling you're able to do, especially if you want to maybe end up in TV. Maybe that kind of structure works better for you. Um, so that was the one fold is the kind of what I'm looking for right, is the voice. uniqueness and the voice, but also what is the story telling me that I'm not already seeing? That's mm-hmm. always what we're asking, right? Like I've seen, oh, is this a workplace story of, are there two, is there a receptionist that has a crush on the guy that works sure, as dead? Sure. You know, like there's shows that I've seen iterations for for years, but then this is something of, oh, it's brand new, like that I've never seen. For example, I'll use the work in progress again. Wait, or, is this part of the first fold still? This is still the first fold. Okay. Man, they really, my, my two folds really sort of blur together, but, but I'm sure I'll come back to the second fold at some point. But the... Um, but again, in terms of that, yeah, the authorial voice, that work in progress, which I'll just use as my example for this, um, Abby, and it's killing me, I don't remember her last name, but the the creator of it, and she stars in it, and like I said, she's older gay comic who lives in Chicago, and so that's a unique worldview. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of TV shows, and her show is structured about her dating and finding her way around she starts dating a trans guy which she's never done before and so that is a whole and it's really funny and also oh she's really depressed i'm like it's so funny you guys she's (laughs) super depressed it sounds like a cable show honestly though it does but she's this but all of those things are that's not going to come through your traditional Mm -hmm. like oh i'm going into a network and i'm going to pitch so i've got this older suicidal lesbian and she meets a trans waiter right like so those are the but when i when you see it she has such a voice and it's so funny and so unique and the insights you get from it and the talking points 
Um, and the twofold of why I think episodic is the is the structure of it. I'm looking for something that doesn't just feel like a short film that you've called an episodic. I want it to have the idea of, oh, there are so many interesting narrative threads here that you have built an interesting worldview. I get where I am. Even in four minutes, you can see that with things. Um, I get where I am. I haven't seen it before. Oh, I want to know where they're going to go. Where's she going to go? What's he going to do? You know, like something that's setting up that's what you want, and that it has this tone, but it also has this possibility to it. Or else it's just a short film. Yeah. Short films are great, but that's it's not the same thing. Different deal. You know what I love about this, um, just kind of on a maybe a more broad level, is that um, I feel like independent cinema is economically, business-wise, is like kind of in a weird place right now, where it's a, it's hard to make money in independent movies, right? Like, you kind of just have to be a rich person or no one in order to get them bankrolled currently, right? It's never been easier to make a movie, but it's never been... But it's still pretty darn hard to find the finances yeah. and make money on it, right? And so I think a lot of the filmmakers who have an eye towards smaller, more intimate, more offbeat stories. You know, if you don't want to do an Avengers movie or, or a Mission Impossible movie, indie movies used to be the thing that you could do. Now that that's going away, TV is kind of bubbling up, right? But mm-hmm. then, the, but there's a, so many gatekeepers, as you were saying before. And so what I love about Sundance doing these episodic programming slates is like it gives you a chance to do the independent thing that makes money and maybe you actually will be able to find a marketplace for it. Well, the hope too, it's it's in the same way, like with Slamdance, with the examples I gave you of of directors whose first work we programmed, you probably never saw the first feature that we programmed, sure, sure. but then you've seen subsequent work of theirs. And it's the same thing with episodics. It may be, it's, it's interesting, you may not ever see, I'm just, it's going to be my go-to, but like you may never see the pilot of work in progress that we showed at the festival but luckily now you will get to see. And there's, it's also the voice of it. Like the Broad City women created their whole characterization, sure. the whole flow of the show. High Maintenance was another show that developed online. I love comparing those two, though, because Broad City, I remember when that show was picked up for like past pilot with Greenlit for series, there were like, I, I swear to God, there were episodes of their web series that had 300 views. Yeah. Like, no one was watching that show before it became a TV show. Whereas yeah. High Maintenance had a following. True. And, like, right, right. you know, people were excited about it. But High Maintenance was the show that, like, people would be like, oh, have you seen this cool web series? Right. People were you know. paying on Vimeo to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did, actually. Seems like something you do. support yeah, yeah. an artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that's nice about them as well, and that stands out maybe is something that's more of a thread in episodic, um, is the idea if you're a creator that also is an on-screen presence, mm-hmm. episodics might make sense for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, many people make indie films that they're the lead of, but it's, it is cost prohibitive. Even sure. if you're making... I've made an indie, not to brag, but I produced an indie that was like under $200,000, mm-hmm. which means it's painful and like sure. half the people are there as favors and ugh, pain. But... Um, not to brag, but uh, that's still... my life has been hell for three weeks too. <laughs> yeah, you. So you, you, you guys get not sleeping, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, but the but with an episodic, if you're if you're doing it that way, it can be more manageable. You might be able to split up what that mm-hmm. is. You can budget mm-hmm. per episode and 
do as you go. And mm-hmm. again, maybe you're going to be the star because you're cheapest. And so sure. you can find somebody better once you make it. Um, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of potential there. And there's a lot of labs. And Sundance has a great episodic mm-hmm. lab. And I think IFP does as well. But there, there are things a lot of festivals have just unique episodic submissions as well. So... And I had a pilot at the Slam Dance. We came in. We got a se- second place in the Slam nice. Dance uh, pilot Congrats. competition, whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah, it um, is blowing my mind that there is a festival r- option for for pilots, independent digital series. We'll say. Yeah, a lot of festivals have them. Yeah. Bentonville, which I also program, has one. Yeah. Um, Can I ask at Sundance specifically, mm-hmm. like? how many submissions you guys got this past year and how many you programmed? Well, Sundance is tricky overall. So overall, there's about 14,000 submissions for Sundance. You're, you're talking across yeah, features. across then, features. Right. So around that's around 4,000 features, I'd say. And then so 9,000. Is that math? Yep. Well, that's 13,000. Yeah, 10,000 yeah, 10, yeah. some shorts. And so the episodics, <clears throat> I think we were around 1,000. Yeah. Boy. 1500. Um, <laughs> better odds, that's true, yeah. Yeah. It is shorts. better. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it is better odds, but that's why you have to actually be making an episodic. But I also personally think the life of an episodic, because, you know, we all have friends who have like a short online, but just a one off short. It's like, oh, okay, I'll get my friends to watch it. An episodic, if you're doing it's like a podcast, like you're building a community, sure. you're finding people, you're putting things up regularly. A podcast has almost a social media mm-hmm. feel to it. Um, so again, in terms of if you're trying to grow something for yourself, it could be another yeah. unique way in. I always say I did two seasons of my breakout web series was a show called Squaresville. And it w- people didn't really start watching until the end of the first season. And it was like, oh, finally, like, yeah. you know, oh no, now we've got traction. Sure. You know, those first 10,000 fans are the hardest to yeah. get by far. And then the snowball starts to roll down the hill. But like those first 10,000, you really have to claw to get them. Yes. It's probably, nowadays it's probably more like 20 or 50,000 before it, like you can get real traction. But, um, so this is so fascinating. You've got all of this awesome insight in terms of like what it takes to get programmed at all of these incredible festivals, discovery festivals, like the, the cream of the crop, all everything in between. But you're also a producer. So how has your festival life informed your producerial life? Um, well, I've been rejected at plenty of the festivals that I work at. Sure. Like, I think, I think that's, the, that's the... Wait, can, yeah. you can't program your own movie? No. And actually, I submitted to Sundance before I started programming there. But I did know them all, and they still rejected me. That's fine. That's fine. No hard feelings. Did they, yeah. Do you... As a programmer, do you know why? Like, do you... I always... Uh, you know... Yes. I know why. Yeah, of course. I knew why it would be hard. Um, and I knew why I thought, <clears throat> like, some of my films had a better chance than others. And I think, and I know those films made it further as well. The thing with programming that I think is super important for filmmakers to know in terms of how it's helped me um, and what I would pass along, it's so subjective. It's such a crapshoot. Like, it's a huge numbers game if you're aiming for a discovery festival. The, like I said, like Sundance had 9,000 some short submissions, and I think we showed 100 shorts, mm-hmm. 150. Like, you could be a senator easier, you know? Like, <laughs> right. And I mean a, a, a U.S. senator, not even a state senator. <laughs> like, a proper one of 
50 representatives. But um, I think... Maybe 100. Maybe I said 50. Yeah, no, I only acknowledge one from each state. Sure, sure. That's my thing. I believe in that. Um, I said, I submitted, I said 50. I was like, I think I've done... I think I've done math wrong here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the the idea of it being a numbers game is both, I think, liberate. It can be daunting. Like every time you submit to a festival, it's a total leap of faith. It can be a pain in the ass, expensive leap of faith because you almost always have to pay a f- submission fee. You're entrusting work to people. I mean, think of any screening you've ever gone to. It is. Ve- I'm always telling the director, like, welcome them and sit down. No disclaimers. No, sure. right? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. the immediate thing of like of the apologies or yeah. the and by the way, we don't care about your budget or how long yeah. it took you to shoot this. Yes, so this would be good, but I needed my dad to come in and play the older man <laughs> at last minute. You're like, no, no, thank them yeah. and sit down. <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to hear about like a temp sound mix or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, and all I ever watch, I watch temp sound. Of course, like avid outputs. Yeah. So which like make do a pass on your temp sound mix, right? Most people do. Most people do. People get real twitchy, but it's the same thing. Like the, especially if you're looking at something for Sundance or LA had, we had a ton of premieres. So we're looking at work that's still being worked on. And, but even if it's finished, people are trusting that it's going off. It's going to be in safe hands and they're not there to give their disclaimers. So there's this, it's just hard. Like artists, nobody wants to be judged. Artists definitely don't like to be judged. Sure. But you're in this weird position of having to be judged. Um, and then you're not entirely sure, like, because Vimeo, it doesn't really show. Everyone thinks they can see if someone's watched it, but it mm-hmm. doesn't really show, like, once we're watching things, like, within Film Freeway or without a box or whatever. That makes me feel better because I've got a film that's been rejected from a couple things recently. And I'm like, well, I've got two hits on this v- no, Vimeo link. Because once it goes, it doesn't... It, it screws up the system. Like once it goes through the software, because I've had that happen. Yeah, yeah. And I know for a fact, I know who's watched it. Like yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't mean anything. Or I've had people say it to me and I'm like, I'm the human Your that watched this. Your friend who keeps avoiding right. eye contact right? every time you bring it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm like, I. that's me. I personally watched that. Yeah. You say no one's watched it, but I can promise you that I've watched it. Um so you're trusting that they'll watch it. You're hoping that they'll get it. But it's also, it comes down to this thing of, are you up against another movie that's about a prepubescent girl coming of age story with dad problems? Yes. Probably you yes, are. Yes, you are. Yeah. Yeah. And so what... And they're both probably great, you know? Yes. Like, and that's, so it's this hard thing of knowing as a programmer, I'm looking for, I'm looking for good films that are memorable that, like I said, have this authorial voice, that have something distinctive about them. What is this person as an artist saying that's different than what I've already seen? Also, do is this someone that I think has more stories in them? Do I Are we going to hopefully help launch their career? Is this, could we be a stepping stone to someone? Or are they like a one and done and now they're going to like sail around the world? Like yeah. I, you know, sure. so you're looking at a lot of things and then you're looking. And you can tell that you think from watching their movie. You have to. I mean, that's what you develop. It's it's funny. Yeah. And your tastes change. The more you, you... So you brought up how many films I watch. Well, for each festival, I'll probably watch 300-some features. At least, yeah, around 300 features a festival. And that's after they've been filtered through Wait, other people three, that have watched them. Hold on. 300 features a festival, and you program how many right now? Three. Three. 
Yeah, yeah. Three so a year. So 900 movies I'm a just year. watching so films all year. But it is. It's, 900 movies it's, a year. <laughs> well, no, it's, just like it's two more than that because I also host movie podcasts, so I have to watch all the new releases <laughs> Wait, too. How, did you watch any movies today? I did. How many no, did you watch? No way, really? Well, I watched two movies today. <laughs> like festival submissions? No, for, for podcasts. Oh, good, good. <laughs> but the, um, no, I'm not currently. I'm thankfully like in... Not thankfully, but you do. You need these programming breaks because yeah, that's the other thing them, is yeah. I will say the programmers that I know at all the festivals, we take it very seriously. A lot of us are filmmakers ourselves. Like even if I don't like a film, I, I know what it takes for someone to submit it and what they're entrusting me with. And I also every single time I start a film, I want it to be good. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're doing, right? We're discovering people and we're discovering films. So if you are watching a film with the hope that it's bad so you can get sure. to the next film, then don't do it. Like then you're not in the right job. I mean, what sort of maniac would watch 900 movies a year? And not love them to death. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no bigger fan in the world. Well, there's a ton of them that I don't like, but that's part of what you're developing as well. And, sure. and it's it's aided me as a producer. A lot of people get there because they read so many scripts. Mm-hmm. So this, I think, is a, just a variation of that. Um, but I do, It it is a thing, like with LA Film Fest, for example. So most film festivals, when you submit, films are seen typically by two different screeners. And those are people who are kind of starting their programming careers. Um, and they give them a numeric value and like a little write-up. And then anything that gets higher than whatever score goes to here. For me, because I the I was in charge of our American Indies, so any which is a very large category. <laughs> so um, narratives. Potentially the biggest. Yes. So basically, I also went through all of the submissions and read about them and anything like... To be blunt, like I watched anything by a female director. I watched anything with a person of color. I watched any queer stories, like anything that would Mm -hmm. stand out. If it was someone from a unique part of the country that doesn't normally, like we had this film about minors. I'm like, oh, we don't got a lot of that. Like I get a lot of LA and New York stories. But so I would go through and like make sure even if they gotten lower scores, because a lot of times screeners, when you're first starting, what you're used to thinking of a good film is like... Either your Oscar caliber right. or your it's indie like goodwill hunting, or something. right? It's right. a exactly yeah. like oh, I really love what's the I can't uh, I lost it. I can't even make fun of it if I can't reference it right away. What's the um, Zach Braff movie? Oh, Garden uh, State. Garden, Garden State. State. Like I really love Garden State. So like I'm looking for. The, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, that sure. kind of yeah, like yeah. you know it's so it's so unique and yeah, it's got a, a love story, but he's sad. Like, yeah. I mean, I've always thought about those automatic sinks that turn on by themselves and. He really captured that (laughs) in a movie. It's like what the cinema world always needed. But it's that thing when you're starting out, that's your taste level. Whereas I look at things and it is, it's the, it's the Malcolm Gladwell, like 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. Like I've definitely watched more than 10,000. Which you've done in like one year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but there's something about that of what, what I feel I can watch a film and I'll know pretty quickly, but I always give every film at least the first act. And then I'll always go to the end to see if it changed my mind and then go back. But I I swear, I generally know in like the first three minutes if it's going to be for me or not. Do you ever watch movies? This is, I do this on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Do you ever watch them in like double speed? Oh, oh no. Because, <laughs> because the pacing... That just hurt my feelings. Yeah. Because the pacing is so hard. 
And when I say the... That's what I would do. I'm yeah. And I say, when I say the first act thing, that's their, those are only films that have already been seen by other people. I do right. want to stress that. Yeah, we yeah. would never have anything that like someone just was very glib with. It's more for me when I get to my like bucket of things. Right, right. Um, because also, again, in that first act is when I'm going to know, oh, no, we have another film about mm-hmm. a 13-year-old girl coming sure. of age with that yeah, problem. Yeah. So, um, and this one is definitely not comparable to it. Um yeah, I don't even remember what the question was, but man, did oh, I get a I, lot of I, words in? No, no we were talking it. about. Um, so, as a pro, as a oh, producer, yeah. you were submitting movies to your own festivals, <laughs> and did you know why they made it yeah. or didn't make it? Yes. So, and not when I was there. That sounds super. Or if I was, I was not part of anything because I did have films play at LA Film Fest when I was there, but I was not allowed to be part of the decision Selection. making for that. Yeah. yeah, that's why there's a number of programmers. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and I wasn't the. You're like, like we no, had this like, movie's from Andrea Clark. Yes, you don't even me. know her. Don't even worry about her. <laughs> no, we we have like but a director really of good. programming and stuff. So like, there's people that outranked me that could call, make the call. So interestingly, the I've made three features, and all of them were directed by directors whose previous work I programmed at a different festival. Sure, I mean that can't be a coincidence. Though. No, no, yeah. not at all. <laughs> yeah. um, it's interesting because once I. Um, once I started the first one, which I it's a film called The Last Time You Had Fun, and I made with my friend Mo Perkins. Oh, who's been on the podcast? She has Mo has with... not. Yeah, she's she a really good friend of mine. Oh, that's awesome. I programmed A Quiet Little Marriage at Slam Dance, and it won our jury award. And oh, I met great. Mo, and she was wonderful. And we got along and had a lot of similarities. And actually, I brought her on. She joined the programming team. And so that's the kind when at you... Slam Dance. Yes, because our again, wow. our programmers yeah. are primarily uh, alumni filmmakers. And you get even more of the sense. And interestingly, Mo and I actually disagree on films a lot. And we did when we were programming. But how we talked about them, I just really admired her and thought she had such a great film. And then um, her husband, Hal Haberman, actually wrote the script for... Um, the last time you had fun and she brought it to me and I read it actually before that we did a um, a short film together with Amber Benson for PBS mm-hmm. um, so we did this little sci-fi and worked really well together on that so yes yeah, so I saw Mo's work I liked her as a human I really liked the script I knew how she talked about film because of our time programming together mm-hmm. um, so I was like all right I'm in what do you want? And then it was like three years. Because basically when you're making an indie film, you're like signing up to be in a relationship with mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. Um, and on that movie, were you like finding money? I was the sole producer made? on that. Thankfully, we had most of the fundraising had already been done. Mo also is a natural producer, but she's a director. She doesn't like the producer credit because that's not what she wants to be doing. But when I came on, the fundraising had mostly been done. And so I was doing, developing the script. We were doing a lot of, and I can't say enough, like people should do a million, do a million table reads. Nobody does enough of them. They're free. It will change how you hear the script. You will see holes that if you don't see them until you've already shot, it's free. Like and Also, people uh, generally love to do it. You yes. know, you feel great to like spend a Sunday afternoon eating your friend's pizza and helping them out. Yes. You know, get your friends to table reads. Some good notes feels great to get off your chest. And, and then yeah, and it's go. so much easier. Like, it's really hard to read scripts. So I get sent yeah, a sure. good amount of scripts. Um, and 
It's dumb. I have one sitting in my inbox right now. It's been there for two weeks. Every other day, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I could just read it, but for some reason, you're like, oh. And then you start and you find, then you read it. A table read, poof, knock out 12 of those in one go. Like, look at that. It's like going to a party and also doing homework at the same time. Getting great feedback. Table reads are the best. But yes, so we developed together. We did all all of the minutiae of... And we shot in LA, um, so it was figuring out ugh, like our schedule for our budget, because um, we did that for, I think, around 500, 600,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a few years now. But the, um, yeah, getting all of that together and then figuring out, truthfully, with that one, it's the one where we had the most cast in it. Mm-hmm. And that was a doozy. Um, we ended up with. Uh, Eliza Coop, Dimitri Martin, Kyle Bornheimer, and Mary Elizabeth Ellis, who are lovely and are wonderful, and, and Jimmy Simpson, and Charlene Yee. I'm just going to list our whole yeah. cast now. That's a great cast. Um, yeah, it is a I good know. cast. I love that film. Please go watch it. Um, and how did you get them through a casting director? We got them through or? Mary Elizabeth. Um, Can you just promise them a slot in Sundance? Is that like no? Because this was this was no. This was before uh, I was at Sundance. At Slamdance, and I also could not promise them that. No. We didn't even submit. I never submitted to Slamdance when I was there because the difference, like me at Sundance, I'm a cog. Like sure. Slamdance, I was very much the head of for a long time. I I would not, I did not submit anything. Like, to it would be uh, inappropriate. It would basically. be inappropriate. Guess yeah. what? I've discovered myself again. Yes. <laughs> Great news, you guys. Yeah. Um, again, it wouldn't have been eligible for um, competition because I was clearly not working with first time directors because I'd programmed their previous work, but I didn't submit for out of competition either. It just seemed. Icky. Yeah. Icky is the technical word, right? Yeah, yeah. Icky? Yeah. Yes. So working with Mo um, and getting the cast that we got was how a lot of things work. Um, Mary Elizabeth had starred in Mo's first film and is a friend of ours and um, read it. Her agent really liked it. We ended up going through her agency for a lot of it. So sort of indirect packaging, but none of the like... Sure, packaging fees. <laughs> packaging with like bold black letters. They were just right doing now. their jobs. Is what they were you're just saying? doing their yeah. jobs. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, but but getting recommendations from other people who knew mm-hmm. us, or um, like Charlene had come through our friend Martin Starr, who was in the short that we made with Amber. I know you've talked about this on the show before, of like how you can entice bigger names that you might. It's it's a lot of it is the people that. Like we had two much bigger names attached for the, lo- which is again with like the fundraising. Like we had up till three weeks before we we're gonna shoot, we had two much bigger names attached, um, and then they both fell out very quickly. It was very horrifying. Like, I, know, what I, do. I almost lost okay. Mo forever. But um, part of what had attracted them in the first place was the roles that we had offered them were not like the kind of roles they get, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that all actors are into. Right. Um, People want to be challenged, especially if they're like, are you not, are you not a dum-dum? Are you, (laughs) are you a cool person, not a dum-dum? And you're going to let me do this different thing. So, right. And I'm curious, uh, your other films, did you find the filmmakers in a similar fashion? Yes. So the second film I did is called Lake Los Angeles and it's directed by Mike Ott. And I had programmed Mike. It was actually the third film in what he calls his the Pear Blossom Highway trilogy. And so he had had a previous film that had won um, or been nominated for a Spirit Award. And then 
a follow-up. And so this was the third one in it. And they were all sort of immigrant stories. Mm-hmm. Lake Los Angeles, interestingly, is entirely in Spanish and is about this 11-year-old girl who's been um, smuggled over the border. And she's waiting at a safe house, sort mm-hmm. of. Um, and there's a coyote, which is the name of the guys who kind of oversee these. And he's this Cuban immigrant. And um, basically, her father never comes to pick her up. So mm-hmm. she disappears into the desert. And it's this kind of bilateral story of the two of them but it's a it's an immigrant story with a really fanciful um beautiful side to it actually it was shot by mike guliakis who did um it follows and oh great yeah um and a lot of other stuff that i can't think of right now but he's incredible he just did an enormous studio film that i, I was feel like, like after it follows yeah. he must have just blown yeah up. yeah so i had met mike mm-hmm. and otsuko who was the writer and other producer and that's the one that i was saying was a much bigger team and was like mm-hmm. shot in the desert and mike is also was a professor at cal art so we had this like squadron of younger like super uh, hungry love it um uh, yeah crew. it was it, like scrappy crew members yes. yeah like it couldn't have gotten made without it but it's really beautiful i'm also really proud of that one like it turned out really haunting which was nice because that one i was less involved up front with the story creation and much more once the edit started of notes and but so that was one that i always say with mike's films his his two previous films because he had all of this access to these um, young filmmakers and they were much more run and gun. I, I like to say I was like the adult on the ship. Uh-huh. So I was the one of like all the paperwork and yeah, the yeah. union stuff and Don't contracts. Don't hang up the car while you're shooting, please. Yes. Yeah. So basically it was, how do we make this movie more professional? We'll and do make- you find yourself like when you're making, working on your own movies and working with directors saying like, you know, Last year, we saw like 25 different movies that did the same thing. Um, Like, let's do something fresh. 100%. I say that at the script level. um, I say that in edit. Yeah, I'll say the whole time because it's also people don't always know what the marketplace is. And I say that like there's not really a marketplace in the sense of like, oh, you guys, there are so many pots of gold out here waiting for you. But. Um, I do know what's being made and that's the kind of thing of I have zero interest there's a whole swath of like I'm not interested in stories about like four college age white dudes on a road trip probably to take someone's dead dad's ashes somewhere like sure. there's certain oh, movies sorry on. man cancel that sorry <laughs> put that right into the trash um but uh, there's dead mom's ashes Did that work oh sure just switch up the ashes <laughs> sure. but there's stories that when you're starting your career as a filmmaker, you're in your early 20s, there are things to you that feel huge, right? Like sure, they're resonant. Big yeah. stories to you. Taking your right. dad's ashes across the country is like a, a big thing for yes. your, you know, and losing your virginity be. before the end of college. Yes, yeah. college. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think you meant to say right. high school. Most of those movies did that for high school, but you do you, man. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, college. That's what we meant. But the, but yeah, there's, so there's movies that I've seen so many of or um, the relationship within them. I'm like, I know that yeah. you get, that you think that this funny guy in your crew is like 
necessary and a voice and actually he's not he's definitely not as funny as you think he is yeah part of why you in real life found that guy funny is stuff you're not going to convey in a movie because it's like right oh he's still funny he makes orange juice jokes forever (laughs) and so when he brings up you know there's things i'm not going to get contextually or in like real life funny versus movie funny is not the same thing totally um so yeah, so like for me, for Mike, and then the the other film I did with Amber Seeley, and then um, the other producer on that, it's called No Light and No Land Anywhere. It's exec produced by Miranda July. So like that one was made in a way that we had this sort of like cachet behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amber as well. I had programmed a previous film of hers at LA. Um, but they're all things like all of those, all of those are films that I wasn't seeing at the festival or anywhere else. Like Mo wanted to make a film about a bunch of adults out for one night. It was sort of like the teen hijink movie of mm-hmm. like, we have a party limo and we're going to do a night, except for they're all adults with very adult problems. Right. Um, and it happened to be a comedy. Um, what the Lake Los Angeles is about immigration and a young girl like being left alone in a country and how she's coping with that. And Lake Los Angeles is about this British woman who's looking for her estranged father in Los Angeles who left her when she was three. They're all things that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't seen the kind of filmmaking before. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that there would be a place, hopefully in the in the festival sphere, in the marketplace, sure. um, that would make them stand out and make them feel um, necessary in a way that a lot of films don't always feel. Well, you know what's interesting to me, though, is that you know, I think that it's easy for you to, you know, you, you kind of like wink when you say like uh, the the marketplace or like the festival, you know, um, but that having that insight is so valuable. Like that it is the first step for so many films. You can't be a part in the marketplace if you're not at those festivals. Right. You know what I mean? That's not strictly true. Obviously, I don't want to. No, there's definitely different but, but ways it, in. But, but it, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways in. But also, we all know that, you know, big festivals are a big, yeah. are an important part of that equation for people. Right. And, and, and so that is a really special gift for a producer, you yeah. know? Do you find that there are other uh, people kind of in your world that are also producing as well? There aren't a lot of programmers that produce. I think I'm a rarity. I, part of it's because I came up through Slamdance, which mm-hmm. is people with filmmaking backgrounds. Um, for like at Sundance, one of the one of my favorite things about their programmers is their programmer. That's what they want to do. They are film lovers who like this is the year round people. Like Charlie mm-hmm. Sexton sure. is a great version of this. Like he's not interested in making films. He loves being um, an enthusiastic gatekeeper and yeah. helping people that way and finding things and championing them. Um, but I, so I think, no, and I think too, it helps a lot. It helped us a lot for, like I said, the the submission process can be really anxiety inducing for a lot of filmmakers. So when we were at that stage for a lot of them, it was my job of like reminding like, this is a, not, a numbers game. Mm-hmm. It's not a reflection of the film not being strong. We didn't get into this because of this. I'm sure that this will be, you know, and like figuring out our, like our plan of attack. For Lake Los Angeles, we had had two different invites for our world premiere at the same time, and it became this really difficult sure. decision. High class problems, but right, like, but really, very, it must feel very like. Much so. Are you yeah. allowed to tell us? I mean, you don't have to be specific if you don't want to, but I guess. 
I think what a lot of people wonder is like, like, I guess like our, the movie, my first movie premiered at AFI, but you know, we were talking to Sundance and we knew like my producer knew Trevor really Mm -hmm. well. And he's like, yeah, you know, we like it. It's, we just kind of have to see what else we have, you know? Um, And so we kind of took AFI because it was like the sure thing, right? Like how, can you give some advice on like how to choose those things? Like when you're invited to two festivals to premiere, how do you choose which one? In general, I will say if you don't know, you should know that your premiere, your world premiere is a currency of sorts. Mm -hmm. You only get the one. It's the question people ask, you know, it's Uh, like asking where you went to school or something. like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's well, and it's also, it, it speaks to a lot of things. Like there's a language of festivals in the sense of programmers are a rarity of I'm being tasked with having an opinion about a film in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I watch something. I decide if it's, it's the merits that I'm looking for. I don't like to say good because Mm -hmm. that's so dismissive of things we're not programming, but I'm watching something. I'm deciding if it fits what we're looking for. I'm putting it forth to the team. I'm arguing for it or against it. And I'm putting the slate together. And I say rarity because pretty much every other stage, Mm -hmm. there are like 15 people who are like, who liked this? What reviews did it get? Where did it play? Did someone else at our agency like it? Nobody likes to be the person in the vacuum making a decision. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, I think it's a good skill to have as a programmer. And it's also, you just have to be trusting in your own gut constantly. Um, and with that, the reason it means that it's important what festival you're choosing is because you're also marking it of, um, oh, if I get into South By, then it will mean that when I start going to regional festivals or niche or small or whatever, that they'll look at it and be like, oh, South by liked it. So I don't even have to trust my own gut at this stage. Like these people that I look up to look at it and same with distributors, same with the people who are going to fund my next film. Oh, you got into this. So it's currency to a certain extent. There's also, you only have the one premiere. I mean, you have technically if you're an international film, you have like your North American premiere, you know, but your world premiere, your world premiere yeah. is sort of the thing. And the the number of people that don't always know that is pretty big. It's why it, both at Slamdance and at LA in the last couple of years, because we sort of changed the... We had a hard ruling at LA for a long time. It was only world premieres. But one of the reasons Slamdance has been open to both and why we opened it up at LA, there's generally like one great film in the bunch that is like from someone working from nowhere who like played Sheboygan, who played their like hometown festival mm-hmm. so that like the people that contributed money they, could see it. They grew up with the, the programmer and right. it's like everybody from yeah. town. Or they don't yeah. even know the program. They it's like, what, does, yeah. they don't even know what it means. Sure. It's just like, oh, we wanted to play it in this place where like my family could come. Yeah. And what it means on a programming level is I look at it and I'm like, oh, it doesn't even have a world premiere status. It's not even, it doesn't even meet our like status, our eligibility status. Um, for both slam dance and then eventually at LA, we loosened that because I don't want to not support this film that sure. didn't know sure. that it wasn't right. Sp- but what if it's like not Sheboygan, but like a Cinequest or a no, those, Newport a, Beach or something? That's yeah. a different thing. That's yeah. just nah. You made your decision. Like for us, it was only because you're also looking at a festival. You're very conscious of being a gatekeeper. You're very much. We were always looking at it in the sense of. Are we going to help this film? And when you're coming down to like judging films against each other, could this, if, if these two are exact same 
like level like it they have the same number of champions in the room same level of like artistry same level of like they're brand new whatever does one of them need help more than the other Mm -hmm. um interesting so it's all part of what goes into the conversation of things because the other the like this makes it sound like I'm like oh I'm a fairy godmother just <laughs> granting wishes, but again the yeah, the kind of <laughs> the reality side of it is also for the festival we're hoping you will become a success and now you're oh, ours sure. we've branded you like yeah, for yeah, slam dance yeah. like the people that I'm naming I'm like yeah. I get to say that forever yes right. I program Sean Baker's first film which is exciting to me because he's a great director who's made right. this really fancy stuff and even Paranormal Activity like was famously mm-hmm. passed on by like so many people right hugely that one was really funny because i i was supposed to do the q a of that film and i watched it from the back with oren and he was like no <laughs> i'm like what do you mean no he's like i'm just gonna let them leave <laughs> so he did he thought it would like take them out of it because the whole thing of that movie sure, is so the sure. immersive quality is forever yeah, funny to me really that funny. he was like just let them go but yeah so that side of it of that there's currency to your premiere but on the other hand i don't think anything should be that precious because mm-hmm. it can also be really daunting if you've gone through and you know a lot of people you kind of start your year if you're like all right i'm going to submit to sundance first so i'm going to get that in i'm going to get that in in august i didn't get in it's november i'm aiming for south by i'm aiming for tribeca like if you have these like goal posts of these are the major ones like once you've hit those at a certain point it's figuring out all right, we are not a discovery film in this kind of way, but our film still has merit. What kind of home can we find what for we it? Yeah. Um, so then it's, you know, I always recommend like figuring out are there bigger regional festivals near you? Mm-hmm. You should always, always like go through your key actors and your key department heads, find out where everyone's from, find out where everyone from, went to college and submit to those festivals. And when you submit write them directly and be like, we're so excited because our DP and his whole family is from here. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you like to have this hometown film? Because those are the kind of things that make a difference. So I think when people are looking at festival strategy and knowing those, and that's why for our films, like when we didn't get into Sundance, it was, it's fine. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the schedule? What's next for us? Like I personally, most of the two of them, I'm like, we don't even bother submitting to South Bay. I don't think we're the right flavor for did, it. Did you bother or did you, did you submit or no? I didn't submit to a few festivals for yeah. a few things. Yeah. Yeah. Because I also, that's the other thing that's free. Festivals all have a different flavor to them. You can right. look and research for free the other films they've shown. Like one of our films, I like our other back, not back, that sounds so rude, but one of our other plans was Sarasota, which is an amazing festival. We were just yeah. talking. And everyone uh, loves that festival. Kendall, um, who did it. Uh, I programmed yeah. her first film. I programmed yeah. her film, yes. Oh, wow. So let's say you didn't get into Sundance or, you know, Toronto, or, and then you didn't get into Tribeca, you didn't get into South By, and then you didn't get into AFI, and you didn't get kind of the next LA. So now, now you're like deciding between Miami and Heartland or whatever, like, does the world premiere status still matter at that point? Not not as much. I mean, once you get past the discovery things, most um, most of the other festivals don't have a premiere status requirement. I'd familiarize yourself if they do. Um, and I think there are resources online. Yeah. About, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You can. There's a million. I, I think no film school or no, no, no. Pardon me. Short of the week has a great. Um, oh, cool. 
Yeah. There's a lot of people who've sort of compiled them all and have the whole calendar. You can see it laid out. Um, once you get past the sort of discovery ones, because the reasons you want to be at those are for, like I said before, like whatever comes with being vetted by them. But also they do have more of an industry element. They might have more buyers at them. It might be easier to get a producer's rep, a sales rep on. Um, and there's also a better chance of getting a trade review or any kind of press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how, that all said, those things are not make or break, ride or die. Like there's plenty of films that sell and do fine that didn't play any festivals or only played small festivals or whatever. So it's also keeping your head above water and like make a good game plan, figure out backups, but like it's not the end of the world if Mm -hmm. you don't get into. It's like, I like that I'm like both like don't go to film school. Don't stress (laughs) about film festivals. Like everything I've ever, my whole career, I'm like, oh, don't even worry about it. Don't do that. Um, well, I think the reality is, like you're saying, 9,000 people apply, 100 get in. It's mm-hmm. like the 8,900 people don't need to quit their, you know, right. quit quit filmmaking because of that. Exactly, exactly. Um, can I, just because just I really get excited from these, like, very concrete examples, but other than four college guys, like, driving across oh. country with their dad's ashes, are there any other trends you've seen recently that you're kind of tired of? Um, this true story... Years ago, when I was exec director of Slamdance, I was writing, and I was also running programming still. And I wrote, because I was trying to be make um, the programming process more transparent and to give an idea, but also to give some personality to our team, especially at Slamdance. So I was writing this recurring thing of like, please don't do this in your film. Like, uh-huh. I do not any... But I was always saying it in this jokey way. Wait, where were like, you? Were, this was an internal slam dance? No, thing? no, no. I, it was like on our like blog or whatever. Oh, cool. This is how long ago it was. It's not available I don't know anywhere. if you got... Oh, the, no, no, no. I took no. these off. But they were also, again, they were very joking and they were things like, I don't need to see any other films that start on an alarm clock. Like, <laughs> I knew you were going to say I don't. That. Yeah, 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 right? Everybody knows that. Not everybody, actually, because yeah. I still see plenty of them. Wait, but, in, but and it's even the beginning of the day. Even if you're messing with the trope. No, Look, if that's you're back what I'm saying. the future, yeah, you can do that. That's what I'm saying. Point, is if like, you're, you can, any of the, I would always end this by saying, like, you can do any of these things if you're subverting them or playing with them. Um, just be aware of film language. And film language is a lot of people use the same shortcuts. So find a new shortcut. Or, like, the staring at the fan to signify... You know, ennui, like, oh, fan, like, there's just, (laughs) so, there's things like that, the, the stories, there's different stories all the time, it's more, um, there's more a sense of if they have any unique perspective, like, I could describe an entire Wes Anderson film to you, and you could be like, yeah, sure, like, oh, there's this obnoxious kid at high school who's, like, in love with his teacher, But then you see Rushmore and you're like, oh, I did not see that coming. So a lot of it's just, what are you doing that's doing something different with this story? My lower brow version of that is I used to work at Comedy Central before I uh, quit to start directing full time. Before a podcaster. Before before my (laughs) podcasting. Um, But my example of a bad pitch would be like, me and my funny friends just get fucked up on the weekends and we hate going to our job. Uh, and that's Workaholics, and that was a phenomenon. Right, which is such a good show. That's you know, so and funny. that show is so good, but that is the worst yes. pitch ever. Yes, it is. But you know, I guess I heard the version of that pitch, which is um, 
it, it's pretty much everyone in America that does not live in LA or New York, like hates work, and they're all their kind of fun comes from. Yeah, they all they want to do is night. party, yeah, yeah. but it's, that's still a like people love to party is not like a strong right. pitch. Or I get, yeah, I guess maybe that wasn't a pitch. That was yeah. more like why people why people like that show. gravitate towards that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, it makes sense, but push push just a little <laughs> yeah. further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or find an interesting way of. Of telling the same story. Yeah. You know, like it's okay if it's not a totally groundbreaking story, but you do have no, to break sure. ground in some way. Yeah. Know? And then, and what about like genre stuff? Is that um, like what you would program a sci-fi film or any, oh, for anything sure. else? Well, ours, I love genre. Like I do, I oversaw our genre programming at LA for three years. Um, genre being sort of horror, thriller, sci-fi, fantasy. Um, slam dance is great because we didn't have a separate slate for it. So we generally always had one of like, um, paranormal activity played in competition at slam Mm -hmm. dance. It wasn't in like a midnight screening or something. Yeah. I love that stuff. Even that though, right? Like that's the things of, you want a unique voice to it. And genre is amazing because it's, there's such a futile ground for metaphor, like, Fertile ground feudal. There's such a fertile ground like, for a oh, metaphor. Dre, I don't know where you're getting at yeah. here. Yeah, no, no, fertile. The opposite of futile. Um, that it, you know, historically, that's what so much great genre has mm-hmm. done, and that right now, like, there's great renaissance of film. And I detest the term elevated horror because I think it's insulting to all right. other horror. Yeah, but there is that thing of films that are wanting, like. That are like, no, 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 stay with me. You may Fancy not, horror? Yeah, maybe? well, like, yeah. you may not be into a slasher film, <laughs> right. but our film has an, another layer of meaning to right. it. And, yeah, I think that's great. I don't know if that ties, or that answers No, no, it does. Because I I guess, you, you know, what like a lot of what we've talked about over the past hour has been how fresh voices are what you need. I think a lot of us feel like maybe our voice isn't fresh that for the last 50 years like kind of people like us have been telling stories and so to me sometimes when you lean into genre stuff it's like when you can kind of tell a new story in a different way or the same story in a different way that said I just went to this like pitch I just went and witnessed these like 10 tv pitches and there were like two sci-fi shows during those pitches and they were exactly the same as the sci-fi show that I was pitching like you know last year so it's like it's like oh even in the in the genre stuff it's like really hard to be original i don't know especially when you're not based on you know ip and it's yeah. not based on you then you know i, I don't know it's, it's just something I'm. or your a lot idea about. is that great that it's like transcending mm-hmm. other people are having no i'm <laughs> i'm with you on that and i think though there is something about it's hard to creatively push yourself of oh how is my idea going to be the newest and freshest because it also needs to be something grounded and that you can see the 360 of like right right. um i I can't tell you how many times i'm like pitching a movie and it's kind of like get out but without the racial stuff you know (laughs) (laughs) like okay so it's not a good movie (laughs) so it's a family horror yeah yeah Yeah. okay i guess yeah Cool. Anyway, uh, so cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I, this has been very illuminating. Thanks so oh, much good. for talking with us. Wait, before we get into our unpaid endorsements, so um, what your podcast? Um, I host. Um, it's called Who Shot Ya on Maximum Fun. It's a movie podcast. So we do sort of one. We talk about a different film each week, 
and then have um, like staff picks and we go through some sort of news stuff. But that's great. Our our whole sort of thing is that it's not just straight white guys because a lot of movie podcasts are. Sure. Listen. Listen. Yeah. I come from a long line of straight white guys. I'm a big fan. Um, but in terms okay. of film criticism, um, yeah. it's nice to to have a mix of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I also co-host um, Ticklish Business, which is a feminist classic film podcast. Ticklish Business. What a great title. Wait, what do you mean by classic film? Like you talk about older films? We talk films? about films from, yeah, from like 1920s through 1970. Basically. So you add to your list of 900 other movies yeah, you're I'm watching. The worst. Like this week, I was like, ooh, I need to rewatch Ikuru, <laughs> which is like three hours. It's so long. And then Dark Phoenix. Running Whoa. the gamut. You're like, I guess, you're not like those long haul truckers to them. Like a six hour drive yeah, is like yeah. no big deal. But to oh, me, it's like death. Yeah, That's no. like you with movies. You're like, yeah. well, I'll just pop in a three hour movie. No problem. It's no problem. To me, it's like I need seven shots of espresso to make it through that. It's um, the movie that gets me high, man. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> um, well, awesome. awesome. Well, Dre, let's hop into uh, unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. So this is something that I just found out about and have been super excited. But apparently in my research, I was like, this came out like four years ago. But <laughs> basically, did you guys know that Google Maps does underwater street view at the Great Barrier Reef in Australia? No. Yes, I'm blowing minds. So it's straight up like how normal Google Maps is and you go to Street View and it's like, do, do, do. That's how I knew where I was going today. I was like, oh, that's what that looks like out front. You, They have done some in the Galapagos. They have the Great Barrier Reef and it's underwater 360. It's Street View, but underwater. Wow. Like you can see the reefs. There's one you follow on Manta Ray. That's great. Right? You don't have to get whatever <laughs> shots you would need. You don't need a visa. You don't need to travel in a long-haul flight. Do you need a visa to go to Australia? Oh, I meant more the Galapagos. Oh, the Galapagos. Yeah. Gotcha. And do you need... Can you control your you elevation? You don't for Australia. Can, can, you, tr- can you go up above the water or you have to walk it's down the, into the it's water? It's similar to... it. It'll plug you in underwater already. So mm-hmm. like you don't dive in. You know how you can't really in Google Maps, like Street View, you can't kind yeah. of get... Change your altitude. Taller, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like taller or lower. <laughs> oh, altitude. Yes, that's the grown person way of saying it. So it's like that, but you can navigate around and it's like a full 360 underwater that's pretty neat that's really cool right i would love to see the camera rig for that too actually i'm curious because you don't see a diver or anything no if you turn around it's not it's probably like a a drone like a water drone they did it with i can't remember the name of it now but they did it in tandem with some like a systems Mm -hmm. that um maybe part of nat geo like something that was doing underwater photography yeah yeah. anyway but it's a whole thing that's which i thought was super cool yeah Hiking trails will have them as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is pretty nice. I love, like, again, producer brain never turns off. So I'm someone, I went to um, a Greek island two summers ago for a friend's wedding, and it was so fun. But it's, for real, just this super small, not super touristy. And I was still able to, like, I'm like, where's the, because it was this 32-hour travel Mm -hmm. process door-to-door to get there. I'm like, where's the ferry going to land? What do the streets look like when I get... And the fact that I could do that, because again, That's producer brain, like yeah. I need those things in my head. Yeah, right. Of like, wait, You're your own what's fixer. this? My own fixer. Oh, I love that. I might get business cards just so I can put that there on you there. <laughs> cool. You're like, what am I doing with a thousand business cards? <laughs> 
<laughs> Someone want one of these? Yeah. Anyone? You're like, I've told people about what it on my blog. You gave and they're like, uh, it's right on there. Why don't you fix this problem? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, that's incredible. Google Street View for the Great, Great Barrier Reef. For the oh. ocean. For the ocean. Yeah. And several other oceanic ocean view. parts. Yeah. Ocean View. There you go. Nice. Um, cool. So there's this podcast. I might have mentioned it here before. It's called Stay Tuned with Preet. It's a... This guy, Preet Bharara, he was the former U.S. attorney. I follow him in New York. uh, That he was the only U.S. attorney that stayed on from Obama to the Trump administration, and then Trump basically was like, "Hey, are you going to stay loyal to me?" And he said, "No, that's not how it works." And he fired him. Um, And now he's like a very successful podcaster, Um, and you know, with very kind of leftist leanings. Uh, but regardless of that, the last episode is, was called The Laws of Language with this guy, Benjamin Dreyer, who was um, a copy editor at Random House for many, many years. And he wrote this new book that I just bought. I haven't gotten it yet, but uh, it's called An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. Uh, and it's just about writing. And this guy has been copy editing for like 100 years. And so the entire episode of this podcast, The Laws of Language, uh, if you listen to just that episode, is like they literally just talk about like when to use a semicolon and if you can start a yeah, sentence with good. and or but and uh, like um, the Oxford comma or the oh, series yeah. comma, which is, you know, like should you put a comma between the last two words? I love a good Oxford comma argument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just, I don't know, I, I just really enjoyed listening to them talk about it. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Sounds Check it good. out. The Laws of Language. It's the most recent episode. Uh, it came out June 6th um, on Stay Tuned with Preet. And it's very much like, um, you, you know, he talks about how you shouldn't default to he nowadays. Yep. Like it's very much, I mean, he's been doing it for like, I mean, 40 years and his witnessing of evolution and how long it took him to just kind of be okay with using the word, the pronoun they mm-hmm. and like. You know, basically about his comfort and realizing that, like, the, you, the way you learn English is how you think everything is supposed to be, like, grammatically correct and about evolving the language and grammar. So, I don't know. It's fun. Sounds good. Well, um, this is a very eclectic mix of unpaid endorsements. Uh, my last one is uh, a short called It's Been Too Long. Have you guys seen this? Mm-mm. It was a Vimeo staff pick. Mm, um, sounds like a name of something that's not short. <laughs> so this is uh, more, It's more of like a heightened Romance between these two people Who walk into a cabin And they're like ex-lovers And they're just so deeply committed To like this Sultry Heightened like erotic sort of vibe But it's just them talking to each other About whether or not they should make love And reminiscing about like The last time they had a rendezvous Sounds and like it's, a Will Ferrell sketch Kind of, kind of, but like a tiny bit more grounded, but pretty close. It's not too far from that. Um, and it, the performances are really great. It's really um, just like charming and funny and like an elegant little short that doesn't really evolve a ton, but I really was captivated by it and really loved it. It's like a good, you yeah. feel like a good sense of time and space. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Do they use the term make love? Because that makes yes. me uncomfortable. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's going to definitely, definitely factor into me watching it or not. There's definitely like a lot of like unbroken eye contact oh. between the two of them. Um, and I did a little digging because <laughs> I was trying to figure out why, where I recognized the male lead from. And I realized that the filmmaker, she did a bunch of uh, Geico spots. And the guy is the guy who pops out of nowhere and is like, this is a Geico commercial. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so that's, amazing. That's a nice little connection there. That's um, amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. so he's the head in like the fried rice. Yeah. 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 No, he's he's really good in those Geico commercials. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're a duo made in heaven. Uh, well cool. Well thanks so much for coming on the show, Drea. And uh do you tweet? Do you is there any yeah, how how can our can listeners find you? Yeah, keep I'm track on of all of your many things? Mostly Twitter. I'm not super good at it, but I'm okay. I'm at the Drea Clark. T H E D R E A C L A R K. Perfect. Um, well, you can find uh, me at Mr. Matt Enlow and uh, at Just Shoot It Pod for all of our social. Um, you can check out our show notes. We'll have links to all of the things that we talked about, thanks to our wonderful producer, Madeline Rosenwatt, uh, on our website at Just Shoot It Pod. Yeah, and I'm at O Kaplan on Instagram. And uh, yeah, send us an email, justshootitpod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. Let us know if you have any questions. Rate us on iTunes if you don't mind. This episode was edited by Jay McCullough, it was produced by Madeline Rosenwatt. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.